This is No BS, a series of authentic conversations about the world of work. My name is Dr. Carlin Borosenko. I'm an organizational psychologist, and I work with individuals and organizations all over the world to help them create amazing work experiences. And I'll be honest, in the work I do, I run across my fair share of nonsense. In this series, we are going to call BS on the things that are just completely unnecessary in the workplace and explore how we can do them better. Ready to go? Let's get started. In this episode, I talk to seasoned human resource veteran Ryan McShane. Now, Ryan and I don't actually just touch on one topic in this one. We bop around to all sorts of things that Ryan has experienced from the very beginning of his career, talk about lessons learned, and how leaders can do it better. It's a wonderful conversation with lots of valuable insights. So let's dig into it and hear what Ryan has to say. All right, Ryan, I'm so excited to have you here for No BS. I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit about yourself and your background. Thank you so much for having me, Carlin. So uh, my name is Ryan McShane, and um, I've been in human resource management for 20 plus years. I've um, really kind of been there uh, and done that in terms of the different environments and places in which I've worked over my career. And uh, that's really kind of brought me to where I am today, um, serving in a capacity as an um, entrepreneur and uh, independent HR consultant. Uh, today, I go into small to medium-sized businesses and support their uh, leadership in terms of establishing best practices across their people um, <clears throat> practices and um, just having um, the full employment life cycle addressed from a best practices standpoint. Um, so I started my career uh, of all places, and I say of all places uh, because you'll hear from my story uh, based on my personality and my experiences, um, how uh, there's been several instances in which uh, I've recognized um, a mismatch between culture and personality. Um, so I started my career uh, working for the Department of Defense at Aberdeen Proving Grounds, and I was doing job classification and staffing there. And uh, after two years, 28 days and six hours, not that anybody was counting, um, I, I left and went to the complete opposite end of the spectrum in terms of uh, work environments. And I went from uh, the federal government environment to a dot-com environment. So I went from a place where their motto was, we have a form for that, uh, to a, a place where they were actually flying the plane as they were building the plane. So really interesting experiences. Um, and it was really neat, and I cut my teeth um, in, in that regard. You know, the government was a good foundational experience to enable me to jump on to other opportunities. And uh, when I went into the dot-com space, I was uh, the single point of contact for a little under 30 clients throughout the mid-Atlantic region, as well as um, LA, Chicago, and Vegas. And I was serving clients that were white collar, blue collar, and gray collar, everything in between. Um, there were high tech firms, there were uh, insurance companies, and there were veterinary clinics. I mean, you name it. Uh, I was dealing with it. And they would call upon me for everything under the sun from writing an employee handbook to mediating employee relations issues to establishing best practices. And uh, really a great experience. Well, the dot-com bubble burst and um, 
I found myself looking for a new opportunity as this company was sold um, to another uh, PEO or professional employment organization. And uh, I found myself uh, working in long-term care and uh, it was a large nonprofit uh, and they had core values that weren't just a sign on the wall that people actually walked them and talked them. Uh, and this was so refreshing to me given my prior experiences um, where it was pretty evident to me that people were there just to, to collect a paycheck. Uh, they weren't really aligned from a purpose standpoint to the work that was being done in that space. So it was very refreshing for me. And I had, uh, I reported to the VP of HR, um, who was a servant leader in her approach and uh, something I really identified with um, as a person, as an employee, and something I try to model today and actually purport as I share leadership uh, best practices is that servant leadership modality um, really serves um, and I think is in greater alignment with any other uh, than any other leadership modality that's been exhibited in the past uh, in um, the workforce. So that's something that I uh, hold up today uh, in the work that I do is servant leadership to a great extent. Well, uh, this was right around 2004, uh, 2005 timeframe when the height of conversation was the insolvency of Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, where uh, everyone had once thought there's gold in the old and uh, there will be money here for many years to come in terms of services to the aging. And uh, that just wasn't the case in that time frame. In fact, a lot of people start, had to st start going back to work, um, had to start holding on to their money, and weren't investing it in long-term care services as was previously thought. So uh, what happened in that scenario was the CFO of the organization was fired. Uh, a new CFO is brought in. And what is that new CFO supposed to do but find money? And that person saw HR as a cost center rather than uh, something that contributed to the operational revenue and value. And as a result, it was one of those last in, first out, highest paid type of scenarios. I found myself downsized again. And, um, you know, uh, that, that was certainly a, a bit of a shocker to me, especially because um, I really loved what I was doing. I loved who I was working for and supporting. And I felt like I just kind of found my home. Um, after prior experiences where that wasn't the case, um, it was really refreshing to go into that environment and then to have it be pulled out from underneath of you due to, through no fault of your own, uh, that, was, that was an adjustment. And so um, turning the page, I had um, an offer on the table from um, a private industry, uh, one of the big four accounting firms in downtown um, Baltimore. And then I also had an offer on the table from... Um, a local government agency. And so the private firm was willing to throw me a lot of money. And um, it was a matter of job security was my great, um, greater concern. When I was downsized, my wife was eight months pregnant at the time. And so certainly that was contributing to stress and uh, the need for security was um, a higher priority for me. And uh, so I uh, chose the safe route and went with the county um, local government uh, infrastructure. And the only reason I did that um, was because the person that was hiring me into that role came from the private industry, understood business, saw things from a business standpoint. And that's something that aligned with who I am. Um, and so it was, it was refreshing to me and something that I thought would be a good challenge. 
Well, for the next three years, uh, three to five years, really, I just thrived under that experience. Um, I was able to come into an institution that had uh, very little uh, to no infrastructure whatsoever from a human resources standpoint and implement, um, uh, you know, not only the foundational um, pillars of human resources, but build out upon that and created a lot of policy and program to um, incorporate engagement initiatives and continuous learning initiatives for uh, the employees. <clears throat> and what a great experience that was. Um, fast forwarding a little bit, the uh, person that I came in under had retired. And uh, the next person to come into that leadership role uh, had come up through the ranks in the, in the system. And uh, certainly, I, I love to be able to uh, hold up and applaud those that have uh, risen through the ranks. Unfortunately, uh, the person that had risen through the ranks um, her leadership modus operandi um, was make no waves, don't stick out your head for fear it'll be cut off, um, and just sit back and collect a paycheck and, and uh, you know, do what you're told type of environment. And uh, this really flew in the face of everything I believe in, um, not only from a professional standpoint where a human resources um, professional is a change agent. That's part and parcel of what they do. But also from a personal standpoint where I, I recognize that continuous growth is what keeps me engaged, I recognize that that's also what keeps others engaged. Um, and so this new modus operandi um, was something that created a, a significant rift and conflict um, between myself and the leader of the organization. So I spent the next uh, few years um, trying to basically convince this person um, that I think we need to continue to enact these programs and initiatives to support our employees and their growth, as well as identify uh, the pain points and stem those pain points from which leadership is having to deal on a, on a regular and recurring basis. And I con uh, was constantly met with um, experiences that told me that uh, number one, they weren't willing to see things from a standpoint of uh, growth, um, that they were only willing to see things from a standpoint of control. Um, and so it was, it was a very uncomfortable experience, let's just say that. And um, so I had started seeing the writing on the wall that I was no longer aligned with the organization and their culture. And so started to build my consultancy um, while I was working there. In, in a, enabling me to have uh, the kind of um, um, opportunity to leap into another experience. So um, I mentioned in the very beginning that I um, operate a consultancy. And so I support both ends of the workforce spectrum. And that's really been an incredible experience. And it, it's uh, very synergistic as well um, because I support people uh, in career transition, as well as supporting organizations from a leadership development standpoint. So one kind of feeds the other in terms of recognizing what um, job seekers and those in transition are looking for in their current work environments. I hear that and I'm able to give that information to the leadership for them to have a clear understanding of what employees are looking for. And in the same token, I can hear what leaders are looking for in their top candidates and offer that kind of feedback to my uh, clients. So it, it really one feeds the other 
and I'm able to work both ends of the workforce spectrum to kind of uh, help people meet in the middle, so to speak. And that's, uh, that, that's been a wonderful experience. I tell you, when, when I get a call from my clients saying, hey, not only did I get the job, but I got a 15% increase and my confidence back again. I mean, th- those are the kinds of experiences that I truly live for. Yeah. Okay. So lots of diverse experience that we're going to be able to pull from for this conversation. And I suspect we're probably going to, we're going to bop around to a couple of different subjects, but one of the subjects that we talked about when we were first um, thinking about doing this podcast was something that you were told by, um, I think an HR pro when you were, when you were kind of a little bit younger about your age and how that impacted how people perceived you. You want to tell me that story? Yeah, I think, you know, there's been a number of experiences uh, over my career that have created disillusionment or awaking, so to speak, of my naivete in terms of uh, how I thought the workforce would run. And so, you know, I, I when I started my career at uh, the DOD, um, you know, I was, I was pretty naive. I walked in there at uh, 21 years of age and uh, thought that leaders were going to be like uh, your parents, uh, people that had your best interest in mind. Um, little did I know, and soon did I find out that that wasn't the experience. Um, I saw a lot of sabotage. I saw a lot of uh, stabbing people in the back. I saw a lot of uh, uh, self-service, um, individual agendas operating. Um, and an example of that is um, working in an HR space, you would think that people would have um, a little better um, articulation of how they operate. Well, um, I found out I had an interaction with uh, my supervisor who um, told me straight, straight out to my face, um, hey, Ryan, I can't respect you because of your age. Uh, and this just, uh, my, my head nearly popped off um, with just shock and surprise. Number one, this is an HR person that is fully discriminating um, against me um, based on my age and articulating that her view is such that because you're of a certain age, I don't have to treat you with respect. Well, this, this flew in the face of everything that I was educated upon in terms of equity and equal treatment and human resources and best practices and leadership and all this kind of stuff. So here, here is a, a great example of uh, a disillusionment uh, that I experienced in, in work and how that's kind of shaped me and who I am today. Um, you know, being able to speak truth to power is something that is not uh, readily welcomed in a lot of organizations, yet it's precisely the type of thing that we need to have um, embedded in positive workforce cultures. Um, Workforce cultures don't evolve on their own. They need leadership at the helm driving those changes. And so if your leadership at the very top is such that they, they believe that communication should occur one way or they believe that respect should only uh, take place one way, then that's going to be recognized in terms of their policies or procedures and their relationships. And so I quickly saw that um, that's how they viewed things. Um, it was very much a, an authoritarian model. Um, respect flows one way, communication flows one way. Um, and as a result of that, uh, I started to really kind of sense that um, everything that I thought and was taught is not necessarily the real world scenario. Uh, so again, starting to wake up a little bit in terms of um, hey, this isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. And as a result of that, I need to kind of adjust how I view the world and uh, think about my current work environment. 
Mm-hmm. This is something I run into with so many young professionals is they have this view of the workforce that um, is really grounded in, you know, fairness and everyone's going to be treated equally. And if I just, you know, if I do a good job, I'm going to get promoted and all this stuff. And then they get into the workforce and they find out that that's just not always the case. And when I try to explain this to young professionals when they're, you know, just either, um, you know, they're about to graduate from college or they've just gotten out of college, they do not want to hear it at all. And I, I really do think it's something that you have to experience to really understand it. So what was that like for you, if you can remember back to have that realization that, oh my God, this is not, this is not what I thought it was. Yeah, it was it was certainly um, shocking to say the least. Um, I, as I said, uh, you know, I didn't know what to do when I was met with that um, that you know point that I, I don't have to respect you, you know, because of your age. Um, I, I just I had to walk away in that moment um, for fear of what my emotional reaction was. Um, and so <clears throat> I did, I walked away, um, I had an opportunity to talk to my supervisor, um, or that person's supervisor, um, who is too removed from me to talk about this and say, you know, and of course, you know, that supervisor tried to allay, you know, uh, concerns and quelch, uh, or squelch any emotions associated with it. And, Hey, you know, this person is just comes from an old school and this is how this person is. And you just kind of have to let them be who they are and blah, blah, blah. And, and my larger point in the articulation with this director was, but these are practices that impact people in their livelihood. This is a greater concern. I'm not taking this from a personal standpoint. I'm concerned from a larger dynamic that you have leaders, supervisors that are in charge of people's lives and charge of people's um, well-being and their professions that are operating in this manner. This is something that needs to be addressed. And um, while, you know, there was good lip service to it, uh, once again, people don't like to, like to rock the boat and they'd rather just uh, act like it didn't happen and keep going from there. So the message was suck it up, buttercup, uh, keep moving. And if you don't like it, uh, there are other opportunities out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so obviously I, I chose other opportunities. Um, you know, this is also the same place and space where, Every single day uh, for about two years, I sat next to someone who fell asleep at their desk for at least an hour a day. Um, And so by the very merit that she was hired two years prior to me, I knew she was getting paid several grand more than me every year. Now, the fact that I produced nine times what this person produced on a daily basis really didn't sit well with me, the fact that she was getting paid so much more. And so once again, um, federal government and and governments are run uh, and on a um, financial system that is seniority based and a compensation system that's seniority based. So it really doesn't matter from a meritorious standpoint, how much you produce or how well you do, what kind of quality you do in your job. If you've been sitting there longer than the other person, you get paid more than that other person. Well, that's something, again, disillusionment that it created in my mind is I couldn't wrap my head around this idea that I couldn't be in control of my own career. Mm-hmm. Um, so another example of that was I, I had said, hey, listen, I, I want to be, 
I want to continue to grow and be exposed to different um, opportunities for growth. Um, as an HR generalist, I'd like to step into some more staffing and classification and, um, on top of classification. And so I was detailed uh, for a, a period of time to uh, class, uh, to staffing, and I found myself doing more administrative work and that was putting me in the opposite direction of where I wanted to go. I wanted to have more interaction with people and actually do real HR work. And so um, after a couple months of seeing that this was the role and um, this was not what I intended, I went back to uh, the VP of HR and said, hey, this isn't what I'm looking for at all. And I'd really like to go back into my old role. And uh, the response was, well, you don't really have that choice. That that's not, you know, uh, that's not something that um, you necessarily have a choice over in terms of your job. And I said, again, I, I, I was left flabbergasted thinking, what do you mean I don't have a choice in my own career? Mm-hmm. Um, but that was very much part and parcel of the culture and the environment. Um, so again, I had this disillusionment um, that was realized and experienced over and over and over in that space. So that's when I went, um, left that environment and went to work for a dot-com, which was completely different, completely different. Uh, A great deal of it was um, having autonomy to be able to uh, do the work that I did. Um, But I got a story for you there in terms of speaking to power. Oh, let's do it. So, uh, it was uh, the first week on the job, and uh, the VP of HR gathered all, all of us HR journalists together and um, said, hey, we're going to be meeting on a weekly basis. We're going to have these uh, weekly meetings. I want you to know that this is uh, your meeting as much as my meeting and uh, all this kind of stuff. And then uh, he kind of threw it back out to the crowd and said, what do you want to see uh, as a part of these meetings? And I thought, oh, well, wonderful. He's actually asking for input. That's great. And uh, so I can already tell where this is going. <laughs> Never assume they actually want input when they ask for input. <laughs> well, I learned that quickly. Once again, once again, the disillusionment of what they say and what is actual reality. And so um, he's, uh, this uh, VP of HR uh, offered it up to us. And I said, well, I've got an idea. You know, it occurs to me sitting around, sitting in this room, looking around at everybody else. We all come from different backgrounds and experiences. And I imagine each of us have a strength in an area based on what we've been exposed to. What if during these meetings, we take five minutes each to share on something that we have a particular expertise in, whether it's FMLA, whether it's employee relations, whether it's job classification, whether it's recruiting or staffing, Um, you know, that way we could all leverage each other's experience and really rise as a collective. Okay. What a concept. What a concept, uh, you know. And so I thought, yeah, you know, this is a good idea. I might as well share it. So the response to that share was, um, Ryan, um, we do support and appreciate continuous learning, but we encourage you to do that outside these walls. So in other words, we're going to we're going to benefit from all the continuous learning that you invest in for yourself and probably pay for yourself and put in time outside of work, but we're not actually really going to support that as part of your professional development track in this job. Very much so. How did that Very feel? Much. Yeah. So um 
I um, once again felt this um, horror, um, the similar horror and shock that ran through me in the prior experiences of disillusionment. Um, and I thought, oh no, what did I do? Oh, what? I'm in another company that's just like the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and was- I suspect too, sorry to interrupt, but I suspect yeah. too, like you had gone from, you know, a, a government agency which is, I mean, very, very kind of top down and very process oriented. And you, you, because you didn't like the experience you were having there and didn't have the opportunity you, to, opportunities you wanted, you kind of completely rebelled against that and said, I'm going to go to the furthest possible thing away from a government agency that I can get to. And you still found a similar type of environment. I sure did. I sure did. And mm-hmm. so that um, really enabled me to see from a bigger picture standpoint, what are some of the common issues that occur across all different industries and all different environments. And, um, you know, I started to adopt the perspective that, hey, you know, that's why I'm in the role that I'm in from an HR standpoint, is there are problems anywhere you go from a leadership dynamic, from a team dynamic, from a cultural dynamic, from a policy and procedure dynamic. And those are the things that I have expertise in that I can help evolve the organization through and help them experience greater outcomes as a result of these ideas and thoughts and, and continuous learning and education. Mm-hmm. So, so let me ask you this, because I play, I play in the HR space quite a bit, and I find generally there's two categories of HR people. And I'd, I'd actually like to get your kind of thoughts on this if you think I'm totally wrong. But that first category of HR people, they're like you. They're, they're people that genuinely are coming from a really good place, that care about people, that want to see people develop, that have a really strong interest in putting these programs programs in place to make sure that people are having these great experiences. That's category one. Category two, and I hate to say this, but I think this ultimately ends up making the majority of HR professionals are people that are coming in every day and doing the kind of the bare minimum to get by and not going the extra mile. And they tend to align themselves more with the leadership in an organization and see themselves as the implementers of the executive will rather than the supporters of people. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. Um, There's two perspectives from an HR standpoint. Either you're an employee advocate or you're a management advocate. Mm -hmm. And so that's typically how it's seen. And um, I really walk the line um, as much as I possibly can uh, in terms of being an employee advocate and a management advocate, because I think they can be, they don't have to be um, um, different in orientation. They don't have to um, differentiate. They can be in support and in alignment of one another, an advocate of employee and advocate of management. Um, where the issues come in is, um, I think we have a lot that is contributing to the scenario that you described. HR as a profession has evolved a great deal over the last uh, 20 to 30 years. It is no longer personnel. Um, where it's very compliance related, where it's administratively driven, it's a lot of paper pushing and things of that nature. I think that you see there is still a population of that um, in HR that is very much the compliance and administrative um, 
approach to human resources. And then you've got uh, the people that are the change agents, the constant pushers, um, the constant evolvers that are always looking at opportunities for growth. And that growth mindset uh, that exhibits in HR is, I think, where the HR profession is moving. And um, you're, you're, we're getting away from the administrative and compliance stuff that really can largely be uh, relegated to a lot of computer-based systems these days, that we don't need that component from a uh, human standpoint any longer. And so uh, depending on your role and what your position was uh, and the culture of the workforce environment, I've seen both exhibited strongly, um, both the compliance standpoint as well as the change agent who's constantly looking to grow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of a keynote I saw at the Sure Manual Conference. I think it was this past year in Vegas, and it was Martha Stewart. Oh. And I actually, I wasn't, I didn't really know what to expect from Martha Stewart. And I, and I actually really enjoyed the conversation, but it got to this point in the keynote where she started talking about how her company had actually outsourced HR. And I'm like, oh my God, you're in a room in front of like, what, like 15,000 HR professionals. And you're basically telling them that I care so little about the contributions that your profession can make to my company that I've just outsourced it entirely to save money. And I almost, I, I started thinking when, when that happened about, you know, uh, so many people, and, and you brought this up too, that HR was viewed as a cost center in one of the organizations you worked in. And that, that ultimately ended up getting you laid off. But I almost wonder if it's this culture of, you know, the, seeing themselves as the executors of, of what the executive wants that mm -hmm. really keeps HR down in terms of the value that it can contribute to the organization. Because if you're coming in and you're just kind of like pushing paper and you're doing all this compliance stuff, how much more value are you really adding? And I think that there's so much more opportunity to add value to the organization with that more proactive approach that, that you've been talking about. I would agree 100%. And those are the kinds of experiences that I saw um, later on in my career as well. Um, having the expectation that as an HR person, I'm supposed to do whatever management says. Um, and that those experiences are what started to contribute to the fact that I knew I needed to look for another opportunity to go and launch my business. Um, because I started to see things where I had a lot of opportunity to coach up, if you will. Mm. Um, I had supervisors and uh, division chiefs and directors who were sharing uh, individually identifiable health information from a HIPAA standpoint that's highly illegal. Um, I had to pull them aside on a number of uh, occasions and say, these are things that you can't share. This is not something that you could be doing. Um, and you're subjecting us as a company to a great deal of liability. And it was, oh, Ryan, you know, they don't care if I share this. They don't care. But that's not your decision. As the, as the leader, you should know better than to do those kind of things. And so how well do you think that they receive that kind of message? Uh, not too well. I mean, no. you know, their egos couldn't handle the fact that, you have uh, an HR person who you supervise is telling you that you're doing things in a way that aren't appropriate, are illegal, and aren't going to benefit your organization. And so this is going to um, upset them a little bit. And so I, having the, had those experiences over and over and over again, um, I saw 
I saw those experiences. I saw those instances in which um, employees were um, not considered in terms of their concerns and their arguments because it wasn't according to the agendas that were driven by the leadership. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it was a little scary um, to see that employees, you know, when they had le legitimate concern, uh, if it was anything besmirching leadership and management, they were going to quickly quelch that information. Mm -hmm. And so here I was as the HR person trying to advocate on behalf of the employee that we uphold their concerns and address their concerns to continuously being uh, told behind closed doors, uh, no, you know, you're not going to address this. You're not going to do anything about this. Uh, that's not a concern. And then they would, uh, this was really interesting and in where things got ugly is um, if any employee had an issue pertaining to how they were treated by management, they would start to make it personal attacks on that employee to, to try to delegitimize any concern that they might have brought up. Wow, let's talk about that because that's that's like extra nefarious for me where, where someone it sounds like is bringing up a legitimate concern about what's going on and instead of addressing the concern, you start to proactively attack the person. That's correct. That's exactly correct. Um, and it would be, oh, well, you know how she is. Oh, well, you know how he is um, type of thing. And, you you know, um, so anything that that person tried to um, uphold or carry forward, uh, it would be met with a few leaders and executives and division chiefs, you know, powwowing in, in the uh, director's office to basically besmirch that employee. And they would find any an opportunity to try to besmirch them in public or private um, encounters. Mm -hmm. um, I'll give you an example of that uh, that happened to me personally. So I, um, after months and months and months, actually years of sitting at the executive table um, and listening to the many different problems and challenges, um, it, it had become really uh clearly apparent to me that managers weren't managing, leaders were not leading. And they would say, you know, I've got this uh, problem with an employee. Um, and I've got this problem with an employee. And um, I'm not sure how to deal with it. Um, I, I try to follow up, but we meet only once in a while. So I created this system that enabled them to continuously track their interactions with employees. It was led with best practices and prompting questions of, of how to pull out from that employee their performance and how to get them to analyze their own behavior and their own performance and set goals and close those skill gaps and all that kind of stuff. And so I presented this to the director and deputy director in a meeting and they said, oh, yeah, this sounds good. Yeah, yeah, this is wonderful. Um, well, let's go ahead and uh, cross the room, uh, across the hall and um, uh, share this with the executive group and uh, we'll go from there and see what they have to say. And as soon as I um, share this idea and this information, the director and deputy director start shredding it, tearing it apart, tearing me apart um, in front of my colleagues. Um, it was more than one occasion where I was sabotaged. I was set up to fail, um, where my director and direct, uh, deputy director would say, yeah, that's a good idea. Why don't we go share that? Why don't we go, uh, you know, ask everybody else what they think about it, only to have them sh um, tear it apart before my colleagues, in front of my colleagues. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I would be sitting there like, what the heck just happened? 
you know, five minutes ago across the hall, you said this was fine and now you're tearing it apart. I don't get it. What's mm -hmm. happening here? Um, so, so some very uncomfortable meetings, let's say. So, so let's talk about that a little bit, because I think that that actually, I, I've seen that happen so many times in so, so many different organizations. And I just kind of want to pick it apart a little bit. So you sure. had a conversation in, you know, one room where it's just you and, and, and your leadership and you're getting good feedback and you're saying, oh, we, we should go in and we should share this and we should talk about it. It seems like a really good thing. And then you go into this next room five minutes later and it's like the bus is coming to mow you down and you don't see it until it whaps you right in the face. How, right. how did that feel to be in that position and just be getting kind of torn apart in front of other people? Once again, it was like my legs being taken out from under me. Um, and another disillusioned, uh, disillusionment moment of, wait a second, this is completely contradictory to everything that we just talked about five minutes ago. What changed in that five minutes from now? Um, and it was evident to me that they never had any desire to do what I was describing um, because that would actually solve the problem. That would actually um, mitigate the issues that are happening. And I don't know if, uh, you know, they saw from a standpoint of they needed to be the ones to solve the problems, uh, if it was a part of their ego, or if it was a matter of, you know, we might be going in the direction of actually doing some work around here and we don't want to do that either. So there were a number of uh, issues that kind of came, came to the fruition there. But uh, what I was proposing was very fundamental in how you lead and manage folks. And it demonstrated the severe gap that still existed between supervisors and their employees and how to lead. And again, it calls upon me uh, to continue to double down in terms of what is important in leadership. Um, you know, I am completely invested in leadership and I mentioned about servant leadership as the modality that I subscribe to. Um, well, the director of this organization would constantly say in public forums, I'm really into leadership. You know me. I, uh, it's all about leadership for, with me. And this was the same person that came in every single day. Uh, 9, 9.30, closed her door behind her. You wouldn't see her again until 4, 4.30 when she came out behind that closed door. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was evident to me that what they were <laughs> referring to as leadership was not leadership. Um, and they used the terms management and leadership interchangeably to the detriment of the understanding of either. And in my opinion, they're very different uh, animals. Uh, leadership um, is something where you're inspiring and motivating and bringing out the best in others. Management is all about control and guiding things based on what are your uh, measurables. And so certainly you need to include both in terms of the dynamics of how you support work. Um, but what they thought was leadership was not leadership. And that was evident to me. And someone who was very well uh, educated in leadership and um, I could see the dichotomy a little bit clearer than most other people. And I think mm -hmm. that was uh, a part of the issue as well. You know, what you're describing to me, it sounds so much like an incident I had in um, one of the places that, that I worked, which is like a public radio station. And, and we were talking about, um, you know, to kind of like make a long story short, talking about launching a new initiative to get more people interacting with the content that the station was producing. 
And I had done all this research about all these different big media companies and how they were doing different things online and looking at different things that we can maybe take and apply at the public radio station. Um, now, I didn't actually work in the content division. I worked in the marketing division at the time. And when I was doing this research and kind of coming up with these ideas that I thought would be really beneficial to everyone, I pissed off people in the content division because they were like, what are you doing that? We should be the only ones doing it. Because in, in public media, there's very much like a line down the middle. Like if you do not work in content, you do not get to have an opinion about anything related to it. I hadn't learned that yet when I did this. And so um, I kind of got set up by my boss at the time who was like, yeah, we should, you know, these are good ideas. We should go into this meeting and have a discussion about it. So in the meeting, it was me it was my boss, it was the CEO um, of the station and two of the people from content. And the CEO and the two people from content just proceeded to rip me apart and all of my ideas apart and told me I was lying when I wasn't lying about what other places were doing. My boss just sat there, didn't say anything the whole time. And they would, and, and, you know, the people were like, they were actually just like making stuff up. They were like, well, they, they, the New York times doesn't do it this way. They do it this way. I was like, I was just on the New York times website this morning. They're not doing it that way. They're doing it this way. And so they just started like making all this stuff up. And eventually um, I, I just kind of like sat back and I, I kind of like lost all motivation to even be productively sure. engaged in this meeting. And I was like, you know what, guys? You know, if we're just going to go based off of, like, assumptions and making stuff up, aliens could land on the roof of the building at any moment. Like, we might as well just all evacuate now, like, yeah. just in case, because it could happen. It, you know, it's in the realm of possibility. That, that didn't go over well at all. <laughs> Listen to, you know, in your story, how many power dynamics are at play here? Oh and it God. was very much about stay in your lane, you know, don't touch my stuff, so to speak. Yeah. And I think that's predominantly what we're dealing with in workforce today is this idea of power and control. And it stems from the standpoint of we've been operating from a leadership modality that was created over, two, uh, over 136 years ago. Um, and this coincided with our educational system as well. And so with the emergence of the industrialized era, you saw a lot of this command and control authoritarian model. And while it may have worked for a period of time then, uh, when we were making widgets, we've come into a service-based economy now, not an industrialized economy. And so that service economy is predicated on relationships and customer experience. Do you think the modality of how we lead based on power and control dynamics cohere with that kind of environment anymore? I don't. And I, so I really see that we have to have an emergence of this servant leadership modality come in and take place of this authoritarian model that exists predominantly in um, most of our organizations. Mm -hmm. Now you've talked about servant leadership a lot. So I want to, I want to get your definition of that. What does servant leadership mean to you and how would you like to see that applied in organizations? The servant leader is there for the purpose of supporting their followers, equipping them with the resources and the support and the inspiration, the motivation, the visioning and the purpose to enable them to do their job at the highest level possible. Take that, contrast that to the authoritarian model where it very much looks like a pyramid with the leader at the top, you turn that on its head and the leader is at the bottom serving the followers. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That's the easiest way I think I can articulate what servant leadership is. Yeah. I ask in my, I have a manager training program called Manager Mastery. And um, we have, uh, there's four different modules in the program. There's adaptation, communication, empowerment, and support. And in the empowerment module, the first question I always ask people to consider is what would, what would happen if the employees at your company got to choose who their boss was? What would that mean for you? What, how would that change how you're managing them? Because there are companies out there that are, that are kind of doing that, that are saying that if the team doesn't like the boss, they get to vote them off the island. Wow. I love it. I, I had not heard about those uh, scenarios or examples, but um, it certainly rings true. Um, you know, in the more recent experience, when I was working with the local government, there was one supervisor who we have an epidemic of promote people to keep the, keep people. And so as a result of that, we end up experiencing the Peter principle where we promote them beyond their capabilities. And this was someone who as an individual contributor uh, was a dynamo. And I would put them on any project that we had because I knew it was going to be done well uh, and done quickly and at a high level. However, um, to keep this person, they continue to promote her and put more and more people under her. Well, this was a nightmare because this person, um, their skills were in individual comp- contribution. They weren't in leading and developing and empowering other people. And it was quite the opposite. In fact, this person had more turnover under her than collectively all the supervisors in the remaining organization. And so when I brought this to the attention of the director at the time, uh, I was told, Ryan, don't go there. Now, number one, that's the most dismissive thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, Here I am as the HR director saying, hey, we've got some trends. We've got some, this isn't just one off, twos off type of thing. This person has a trend. And not to mention the fact that um, out of the, 12 people that left, 50% of them had to seek EAP counseling because of the treatment that they experienced. Wow, that's insane. Absolutely. So you know what I was dealing with on a daily basis in this environment where people were treating each other horribly, toxic behavior all over the place, and the director and the deputy directors at the time were complicit if not exacerbating those mm-hmm. toxic environments. That just blows my mind. Like half of the people who left under this person had to, had to seek counseling yeah. because, and, and what does that mean? Like, you know, even, I, I, I mean, I think it's, it's enough to be concerned about it just from the very human well-being aspect of it, but thinking about it from just a purely business aspect of it, like were those people producing at their highest level, were they creating value to the organization? I'm going to bet not because they were probably terrified to do anything. No, they were set up to fail from the day that they walked into the office. Uh, the, the, the scenario here was that uh, the person that was supervising these employees that had to leave was told that she was going to create this position was told that she had to fill this position. And so she did not want to do that. She wanted to control and, and perform the function of this position on top of what she was already doing. So she set these people up for failure. Uh, I'll give you an example of that. One of the ones that was turned over under her, um, we come came to find out that, uh, the supervisor 
said to this employee, I shouldn't have to tell you how to do your job because you get paid X amount of money every year. And I'm going, what? What does one thing have to do with the other? No, you get paid $86,000 a year. I shouldn't have to tell you how to do your job. Well, how do you expect him to do his job? Right. Oh, well, he should he should be able to figure it out. He should he should be a mind reader, apparently. Yeah. 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 Was mind reading on the job description like It was not. I can tell you that for certain. I wrote the job descriptions. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, that these scenarios and examples tell you what a toxic, toxic environment it was. And being in HR in this environment made it, I think, even more difficult. Because here I am, in, uh, in my opinion, charged with upholding best practices, charged with upholding what is good for the employee. But what is good for the employee in terms of what is good for the company as well? It wasn't as if I saw management as the enemy and employee as, you know, the panacea. Nothing right. along those lines. I just wanted people to get along, work together, and do the right things. Here is also an, another part of the issue. And we have this all too common in um, organizations across the United States. Is We have this concept of training is a luxury we can no longer afford. Yeah. <laughs> and so if that's the concept or the ideology that's held by leadership in your organization, run and run fast because you will be uh, put upon, put upon, put upon and being told to do more with less on a continuous basis. Mm -hmm. Whereas the opposite is if you're feeling empowered and you're supported for growth purposes, you're going to realize those experiences. And those are the kind of cultures and environments where they attract, engage and retain top talent on a regular basis. Unfortunately, those environments are few and far between. I, 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 I suspect there's going to have to be some sort of resurgence of those environments yes. because unemployment Agreed. is at an all-time low. It is a job seekers market. And if someone doesn't like the experience that they're having at your company, well, guess what? There's probably another company down the road that has openings because yeah. people are having a hard time filling those openings. A part of what we're dealing with too is, as I mentioned, we're, we're shifting out of into a more professional um, an empowering role of human resources rather than the compliance uh, role. Oh, of I sure hope so, man. <laughs> and, and so that in conjunction with the fact that we're shifting out an environment where authoritarian leadership is giving way to servant leadership, then I agree that I think we will come to a resurgence of what is, in, what is good for the culture is good for the employees, is good for the leadership, is good for revenue, is good for, um, you know, the stakeholders of the group as well. So the synergistic aspect of um, spiraling up versus spiraling down within an organization. Still today, um, despite the diversity that we have in the workforce today, predominantly most of our organiz organizations are run by baby boomers. And so they've been in the conditioning of command and control authoritarian environments longer than anybody else. And so they're used to that, that operational modality. And so anything that uh, seems different from that is foreign to them and not something where they're comfortable in exerting that kind of leadership, that servant leadership. And so because they weren't trained 
because they weren't developed, they continue to, to default back to what they've seen and what they've experienced, right, wrong, or indifferent. And my bigger concern today and why I do what I do is that that's causing a significant detriment and cost to the organization day in and day out based on leadership and the fact that they don't know how to lead their employees. Mm-hmm. And I would even go one step further. I actually just did a video the other day about um, this one organization that's doing an un- unbossing initiative with their executive team, which is kind of what you're talking about. They did this year-long program where um, the, all the executive team went through this unbossing program to become more servant leaders, and we're seeing a lot of value in that. But my biggest thing with that is like, why are we reserving that type of thing purely for people at the executive level? Because Agreed. what what happened if you know they had gotten this training 10 years ago when they were more at middle management or even like, you know, lower positions, um, they're going to bring those values with them. And it drives me crazy that organizations reserve training and coaching and all these things for people purely at the top when they should be pushing it down. And I've even seen it from another dynamic where it's uh, the training and development is purely focused on middle management and not executive management. Mm which is, in my opinion, throwing money right out the door because you are only going to do what you're permitted to do. And so Mm -hmm. while these concepts are fundamental and foundational and really evolving to a workforce, they're not going to be upheld or uh, appreciated by leadership that doesn't recognize it or doesn't understand it. Well, what I tell people all the time with, with my program is like, you know, middle managers, they want this stuff, especially the newer yeah. ones. They're, Great. they're yep. hungry for their, this information. They That's really right. kind of devalue, devour the content. The people at the hardest time with it are the more experienced, I'm doing air quotes, more experienced managers who have developed all these bad habits. And they're like, well, there's nothing new that you I can learn. I've been doing it for 15 years, right? You're precisely right. And um, by and large, Almost every, almost every single time I go and do a corporate training and I've trained all different kinds of organizations and businesses and provide all kinds of leadership development resources, 99 uh, times out of 100, I will get at least one uh, employee saying, you know, this is great. I wish my boss was here. Yep. Yeah. Oh, all the time, all the time. And then it happens where, you know, you teach these middle managers to go and do the right thing and they really want to do it. But, you know, it's hard it takes extra work to do the right thing. I mean, maybe not always extra work in terms of time, but certainly in how you're approaching things, you have to be more thoughtful about it. And then they look up to their VP or their CEO. They're like, they're not doing this. So like, why am I expending all this extra energy when they aren't doing it? That's right. That's exactly right. Oh man. Taking the step back to consider, you know, are we doing everything we can within our power to enable people to be as successful as they can, to um, to contribute as much as they can based on their skills and their competencies. But precisely the opposite is has been the experience for a lot of folks. Stay in your lane. Uh, you know, just like you had said about, you know, you had expertise that enabled uh, support for the organizational initiative around content, despite the fact that that might not have been within your job description or role, it benefited the team, but the team wasn't open to that ideology. And as a result of that, disenfranchised you and disempowered you as an employee. That's cutting off your nose to spite your face on a regular yep. basis. 
Yeah. And what do you think is going to happen when you do this to employee after employee? Well, people are going to learn to kind of keep their mouth shut and keep their head down and do the mere minimum so they don't rock the boat and they don't get in trouble. And is your organization ever going to achieve the greatness it could achieve with that type of attitude? Yeah, I wrote an article on it. uh, And I I don't know if you had a chance to look at it um, on LinkedIn. I posted it. It's called uh, To Speak Up up is to be Shipped Out. Mm. And, and uh, that really uh, resonates with a lot of people that I've talked to. Um, yeah. that, that's been their experience, that you don't want to rock the boat. You're not supposed to speak, uh, uh, you know, power to authority type of thing. Um, you know, and th- that's a real sh- sad uh, issue. And what I often use as an analogy uh, for people to really kind of get it and the detriment that it causes organizations is you wouldn't go out and spend $1,000 on a color photocopier and printer when you could only, when you could purchase a black and white copier printer for a fraction of the cost for $200. Okay. Um, but how often is that exactly what we're doing? We're purchasing this fancy color copier and printer uh, for a thousand dollars, but told you can only print black and white copies. Well, that's what we're doing with our employees. When we're hiring the best and paying them a huge compensation along with benefits on top of that, and then telling them they can only do this much, Mm -hmm. you must stay in this lane. And certainly there needs to be roles and responsibilities and goals and some some kind of um, uh, some barriers there between roles and responsibility. But all too often what we're having is we're squelching people's engagement. We're squelching people's involvement. Um, We're disempowering them based on how we lead them. And that's where it comes down to leadership once again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a great uh, uh, portion to kind of conclude the conversation at. And I think that you brought up so many different ideas about power and control. I think I'm sure we could talk all day about these types of things, but maybe I could just ask you for your concluding thoughts about, you know, from an employee perspective, um, if you find yourself in a position where you feel like your initiative is being squashed, what should you do about it? And I want to ask you the reverse too. From a leadership perspective, how how should they be handling these situations to um, really make sure they're engaging their employees and getting the most out of them? From an employee's perspective, I would encourage a lot of questions. Um, you know, this is my perspective. This is what I'm perceiving. Tell me what I'm missing. Is there something else I should know? Are there agendas that I'm not aware of that would mitigate me from doing what I've proposed? Um, you know, really try to find out what are the underlying issues that, that could potentially be stymieing your initiatives and your efforts. And why are you being shut down or why are you seeing things that aren't in alignment with overall purpose of the organization? Question those things, bring those things up in a way that is safe for the person to articulate them, not in an accusatory tone. I see this or I see that and this is what you're doing and this is what I'm doing. Ask questions, you know, come at it from a standpoint of genuine inquiry. I just want to understand. I just want to know. I just want to see what I'm not seeing so that I can offer better advice and suggestions and do my job at a higher level. From a leadership standpoint, I think it comes down to training. I, 
our workforce, our leadership across every organization, across every industry needs to constantly be sharpening the ax. Mm -hmm. And that's the real issue here is we've got a lot of people that are operating unconsciously. And that unconscious operational modality is being disseminated right, wrong, or indifferent. And that's not in alignment with the higher purpose of the organization or the mission or the vision of the organization. It's ultimately a detriment and cost to the organization. So true leaders, leaders worth their salt and CEOs and executives that want to see people be successful as well as their organization be successful, they will begin to invest in leadership and start doing these kinds of things that we're suggesting around emotional intelligence, empowerment of employees, understanding team dynamics, understanding conflict management, understanding quality communication. You know, there's an 80-20 rule for everything. And it's, and it's funny because 80% of leaders think that they communicate wonderfully. Only 20% of their followers would agree. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. tells you something. So I think that from a leadership standpoint, we need to really invest in, in development and training. Mm -hmm. I, I totally agree. And I think the advice I would add on to that for any leaders listening to this is, you know, it, it can be overwhelming when you get started with this stuff and it can feel really, really scary, especially when you're talking about pushing power down to your mm -hmm. employees, but just start taking baby steps. Yeah. Just, just, just get started. Do, do small things or even, you know, have, have um, open forums with your employees where they can really say what's on their mind without you responding or squashing any of the excitement that they might have because your employees will almost always tell you what, what you need to know, but you have to be open to listening to it without shutting them up in the process. You're exactly right. And I illustrate what's called a dialogue process that enables that it's uh, driven from a circle kind of environment mm -hmm. um, and it's so empowering the first time I experienced it it was like an altered state of consciousness it was so so empowering um, and so uh, engaging and it enabled people uh, to have the permission and space to share from a deep deep level what are their greatest concerns what are their greatest joys um, and how they can contribute to the collective good. And what do they see as things that are distracting from the collective good? Um, by illustrating this dialogue process, it has enabled organizations to move forward, culturally speaking, by light years. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Ryan, if people want to hear more from you, where can they find you? Thank you for asking. Um, so, I, my email address is rmcshane, M-C-S-H-A-N-E, at hrevolutionllc.com. And you can also find me on my website at www.hrevolutionllc.com. And uh, as I mentioned before, uh, Carlin, I love to write, so I'm constantly uploading new articles to LinkedIn. Uh, that's a place where you can find me as well. And uh, I, I encourage anyone to reach out to me if they have any questions about anything that we covered or any of the content I have on LinkedIn. Fantastic. And I'll definitely look up that article to speak up as to be shipped out and make sure that's in the show notes at nobsatwork.com. Ryan, well, thank you so much for coming on. And, and maybe I can have you on again sometime and we can continue the conversation. I would love that, Carlin. Thank you so much for having me. Now, if you want to join in on the conversation and tell me about some of the BS you've experienced at work, Head over to nobsatwork.com. You'll fill out a short form just telling me how to get in touch with you and a quick word about what you want to talk about. 
don't worry. You do not have to reveal your identity to come on the podcast. If you want to, that's perfectly fine. But you are also welcome to come on anonymously because I care far more about the experience than revealing who you are and the specific organization that you work for. So head over to nobsatwork.com. You'll also be able to find past episodes of the show. Now, if you enjoyed this conversation, I think you'll love my book. It's called Zen Your Work, and it's all about how to infuse mindfulness techniques into your work experience so you can reduce your stress, be more creative, be more productive, build better working relationships, and create a more fulfilling work experience. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me at zenworkplace.com. Of course, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, and you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Carlin B. Until next time, I sincerely hope you don't have too much BS at work. But if you do, we'll try to focus our energy in a more positive direction. Reach out to me, we'll have a chat, and we'll figure out what we can learn from it to do it better.